On this episode, I'm in the room with Bob Pritchett, co-founder of Logos Research Systems and CEO of Faith Life Corporation. You're listening to In the Room, episode number 41. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're new to the podcast, I'm founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. There's multiple ways that you and I can stay connected between podcasts, and you can find all of them on my blog located at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Each week, I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I end up talking with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. This week, I'm in the room with Bob Pritchett. If you don't know Bob, Bob's probably best known for co-founding Logos Research Systems, a Bible study software that myself and many others use on a weekly basis. Bob currently serves as the CEO of Faith Life Corporation and has authored two books called Fire Someone Today and his upcoming project, Start Next Now. In my conversation with Bob, we discussed the story of Logos, how leaders shape the culture of the organizations they lead, and how he personally stays interested in something that he's led for all these years. Now I want to invite you into the room for my conversation with Bob Pritchett. Well, Bob, thanks so much for coming on in the room. I really appreciate it. You're the president, CEO, and co-founder of Logos Bible Software. And to start, I was hoping that you could once and for all settle for me how exactly we should pronounce Logos, because I hear people say Logos, Logos, Logos. So what is the, what is the right way to say it? I think the answer is it depends on which seminary you went to. Okay. <laughs> all right. So um, we used Logos for many years, but as we've started to reach a broader audience of people who aren't all seminary educated, our, our team on the road has started to use Logos, which is easier for people to, uh, to mentally map to our domain name. So unfortunately, you'll hear both all day long around the office. Okay. Well, I'm going to say Logos because that's what I'm comfortable with, but now that I feel I'm a little up in my head about it now. But for people who aren't familiar, I was wondering wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about what Logos is. So Logos is a digital library for Bible study. So uh, we have 55,000 electronic books all related to biblical studies and a really powerful software platform that lets you use those electronic books. It's kind of like a research assistant and a library together. So with a Kindle, you might open a book and read it, you know, front to back, and the only user interface you need is next page. But if you think, you know, about writing a paper or a sermon, that's where you put five or six books on your desk and you're <clears throat> checking your Greek and looking things up in the lexicon and reading the commentary next to two different translations. And that's what we are really good at. Yeah. So we describe it really as a time machine, as a way to give pastors and people who want to study the Bible a few more hours in their week where they can focus on people or the content instead of flipping pages. Absolutely. And I'm, I've used it now for the past seven years and uh, 10 years maybe. And it's, I mean, it's a tremendous time saver. I, I can't imagine both what it would cost financially to own all the books that I have in Logos in hard copy. And then also to have the time to actually find them on my shelf would be virtually impossible. So it's a, it's a great, great gift for sure. Yeah, you'd need a lot more bookshelves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious. I wanted to, wanted to start here. I'm curious about your home life growing up. And for this reason, you and your brother, Dan, who uh, I understand serves as the executive VP uh, of Logos, you've both seen great success, both with Logos and prior to that. In addition, your dad co-founded uh, Logos with you and was a successful entrepreneur prior Logos. So my question is, did that just like trickle down for you guys naturally? Or were there ways that your parents
parents intentionally wired you guys for specifically entrepreneurial success? I'm really curious about that. Uh, I think in a way they did. I mean, my grandfather and my dad were both entrepreneurs. My grandfather was uh, in many businesses before ending up with a multi-office real estate agency. Uh, My dad worked with him as a partner and then started a computer company that my grandfather eventually joined. Okay. And my mother had a software company on the side that we were all involved with. So I just grew up in this kind of entrepreneurial environment. And that was my, my thing was business. My brother was into music when we were younger. But uh, I started a business you know, selling honey and keeping beehives when I was in fifth grade. And I had a software company in high school and just kind of grew up in that. And it wasn't so much being pushed into it, but just... You know, when I had an idea, my parents would say, well, you know, maybe that you could make a business out of that. You know, if you like making that thing, we could sell it. And uh, it just felt very natural. Yeah. I wonder, um, you've been obviously successful at starting something from nothing with Logos. Um, and that's a task that a lot of ministry leaders face as well, whether it be planting a church or just starting a new ministry. And I wonder what some of the most important differences are that you see between entrepreneurs who experience success and those who inevitably fail, because there is a very high failure rate. Uh, and I, you have to interact with lots of entrepreneurs over the years. What, what are some of the key differences that you see between the two? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the key difference is. I think that, uh, if I could figure that out, I I could do some other really amazing stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I feel like we've had a long string of failures too, right? And what we keep doing is getting back up and, you know, tweaking it, right? If it didn't work this way, let's change it and try it this way. And, you know, I think there's certainly better, some better business ideas than others or, you know, better approaches and, you know, it's it's fun to say, you know, all it is is persistence and you just keep trying and trying and trying and, you know, give the yeah. Winston Churchill speech about never giving up. But but there are bad ideas that you need to sure. give up, right? Yep. But I think it's the persistence isn't sticking to your one bad idea forever. The persistence is if this is a bad idea, I'll change the idea or pick a new one or look for a better one. And you just keep trying that. Yeah. So. I feel like we're really, um, you know, it's fun to hear, you know, that we're a success story, but I don't think of it as a success story. I think of it as a, you know, a long string of failures that we learned from and and tried something else. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about what, how you've gone about cultivating that resilience, because sometimes it is, while it may not be persistence around the same bad idea, even with good ideas where we all experience some level of failure from now. And then, so how have you guys really tried to be resilient in the midst of that to keep going? Because sometimes the first failure kills people. Well, I think there's a couple pieces to that. One is um, being willing to change quickly. Right. If you're willing to change your mind or to take in new evidence and go a different direction quickly, um, that really kind of insulates you against the big cost of failure. Right. A lot of people, <clears throat> you can see it's the wrong idea, and they they give it another year. Right. Yeah. And I I have lots of terrible ideas, but they they get switched out for better ideas very rapidly. And that being willing to to own the failure, learn what you can from it, and move on quickly is key. Just the more changes you can make, the less expensive every change is. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is just being a student of failure, and that's kind of what you know teaches you the thing about making changes. I read books on business failure. I read, you know, I love to read failure stories. I like to hear why something didn't work out. A lot of you know, we we publish a lot of books about you know business heroes or entrepreneurial leaders or whatever, and they're great, and I learn stuff from those too. But I go and seek out those not best-selling books about disasters and mistakes and yeah. startups that didn't make it. 
Do you see any, uh, in, in your reading on that, do you see any kind of common threads, two or three things that these things can seem to continue to take down other than like, we'll just say like, obviously there's some that are bad ideas, but are there any commonalities that you see in, in failure? I just sticking with it too long, not, not being willing to make, you know, to change your approach, right? You get it. And it's a danger I'm falling into all the time, right? You fall in love with an idea yeah. and a vision of the future and you, you refuse to give that up even when the data starts coming in that it's not going to work. Yeah. I'm listening to uh, creativity Inc right now, the audiobook with by Ed Catmull from Pixar. And, uh, it was interesting yesterday. I just started it and he was talking about, he thinks that what makes Pixar so special is that they're just ruthless about identifying either their bad ideas or what they're not good at and being really, really honest with themselves and trying to grow in that. So I think it's interesting that you point that out as well. Right. And we try to do that inside the company. Um, I've got a, a kind of internal memo about how we, we try to improve the work, not the worker, right? Uh-huh. That we try to have a culture where it's not about, you know, do you like my, my output or not, but how could this thing be better? Which uh-huh. is a very subtle but really important difference, right? There's that difference between if I say, do you like my work, then in some way I'm asking you to reflect on me, right? Sure. And did I do a good job? You know, and, and people want to say, yes, yes, oh, that's great, right? But if you say, I made this thing and can you help me make it better? Well, now I've invited you into a partnership with me to improve the output. And together, we'll both be smarter and better and more creative if we build a better product, right? Yeah. And I think that's what they're doing at Pixar, right? Yeah. It's how do we make this movie better? How do we fix this problem in the plot? Not, you know, do you love my idea and by extension, me or not? Right. No, that's a really important distinction. So tell me a little bit about how Logos came to be for people that may not be familiar with the story. You left high school early to attend college, and then you left college at 19 to become one of the youngest program managers ever at Microsoft. Uh, and then I believe left Microsoft just a year later at 20 to start Logos. Is that correct? Yes. So what I'm just curious about sort of that decision point. Um, so you're one of the youngest program managers in Microsoft history. That's a pretty good gig at, at for anybody, but especially at 20. What what exactly leads to the decision to, you know what, I'm going to walk away from what had to have at the time felt like a much more secure job to start this thing that I don't think existed in any fashion uh, prior to Logos. So how did that decision point come to be? And then kind of what's your guy's journey been like? Well, I grew up in Christian homes, and so I uh, Christian home and went to Christian schools. So I had used Bible software in the actually in high school, right for for Microsoft DOS, you know MS DOS. Okay. Yep. And I had actually written my own Bible software program when I was fifteen, which was just putting a better search algorithm on some files of the King James Bible that some people had put up on computer bulletin boards. Okay. And so I knew that space. And when I was at Microsoft, the Bible software for Microsoft Windows was kind of a hobby project. I had a friend that I met at church. We both worked at Microsoft. We were looking for something to keep up our programming skills. So I said, let's do this Bible software. I know where we can get the files for the King James Bible. There is Bible software for DOS, but there's nothing for Windows. And Windows 3 had just shipped in the last year and was, you know, that was when Windows really kind of took started to take over. So we built the Bible software, and we worked on it evenings and weekends, kind of around our Microsoft jobs. And at some level, it was to keep our coding skills sharp, and uh, both of us weren't coding in our day job. And it just became more fun than what we were doing. You know, I, I realized I was much more excited about, you know, going to dinner and then working on the Bible software at night than about the, the project that I was on during the day. And, you know, Microsoft was still a pretty young place then. I think my, my boss was 24, 
Oh, okay. Right. So it was, you know, and his boss was 31, right? right. So th- it was still, you know, it was like Google today in some ways, or maybe even younger, right? It just a, a young culture and the, the kind of hot tech company at the time back in 1991. But uh, I was just realized I was much more excited about the Bible software. And what gave me uh, we shipped the first product, which I always think is great. We you know don't quit your day job till you're making money. That's good. Right? So we shipped the first version of Logos Bible Software, and it was still running as a hobby project. But we realized to take it to the next level, we we're going to need to put more investment in it. And I had a a, a great boss at Microsoft, and he uh, sent me an email while I was on Christmas vacation, and said, you know. I don't want you to sit around here wondering what would happen. I know about your side project. Why don't you go try it? If it doesn't work out, you still have a job back here. I'd hire you again. Wow. And I thought that was just a tremendous gift, right? And that was the the little push I needed. I was thinking of doing that and and you know, wanted to do it, but having, you know, that that kind of reassurance that that if it didn't work out, I could I could go back to, you know, my job. Um that was a great blessing. Yeah. So then fast forward all the way from there to where you are now. How how has the company and the product progressed since then? So we have just kept growing every year. Um, I think we've had one year in which we didn't have growth back in the, the late 90s uh, in that period. And it's just been slow and steady. So now it's been 24 years we've been working on the Logos Bible software. It's awesome. And uh, we have about 450 people on the team now and uh, are serving... 3 million people between the mobile and the desktop apps around the world. Uh, and it's really exciting. But it's not like there was some kind of moment where it, you know, it started to all come together. It was just hard work day after day after day for a really long time. But over time, those percentages start to be bigger numbers. Yeah. When you reflect on the last 24 years, what have, have there been, what have been some of the, just the biggest challenges for you personally as a leader in leading through all of that change and transition? Well, you know, it's just been growing up with the business, right? So when you start something at 19, uh, you don't, you really don't know all the things you're going to need to know. Um, My dad joined the business. So I'd started with this friend at Microsoft and church and my dad joined early on and led the sales and marketing. And that was a, it was a blessing to have access to his entrepreneurial experience and wisdom. But, uh, for, for good and for bad, he let me lead the company the whole time. He had led his own businesses in the past, and he just wanted to focus on the, the sales and marketing, uh, which was great because that's a lot of tech companies. You know, you get a couple of young tech founders, and sales and marketing are not their strong suit. Right. Uh, so that was a really wonderful thing to have. But uh, we, we kind of learned as we went. So we made plenty of mistakes along the way. Um, for me, it was, you know, just maturing as a person and learning how to lead other people. I understood the technology well. I actually had read a lot about business and felt like I understood that. It was the people that was the hard part. And I think that's got to be true if you're starting a church or a business or whatever it is. When you switch from, you know, being one person on the team to being the person people are looking to for for expertise. And in my situation, it was, you know, five to 10 years before most of the people weren't older than me, right? Yeah. Some of whom were, you know, 10 or 20 years later in their career than me, sometimes 30 or 40 years. And learning to to step up to that and to get the humility to kind of admit mistakes, because um, I made a lot of mistakes and, you know, a lot of things that older, more experienced people were able to call out very quickly. It took me longer to recognize. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of humility and and really learning to, to work with other people. Hey, it's me, Ryan, again. Sorry to interrupt, but I need your help. 
If we're going to make it as easy as possible for people to find these podcasts, we have to increase our visibility on iTunes. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave me a short review? It's that simple. Every review makes a huge impact. Keep spreading the word, and thanks for your support. Now back to the conversation. One of the things I really like um, that's clear just from your guys' website is that you have a very defined corporate culture. It's clear that you've really put a lot of effort into that. And I think that's one of those things that, whether it be parents or pastors, entrepreneurs, ministry leaders, we don't always give enough attention to. Uh, Every family, church, and business has a culture, um, but we don't always work to develop it intentionally. And so uh, what are your thoughts on just creating culture? Where should someone start? What should he or she be mindful of? How have you guys kind of worked to craft the corporate culture that, that at least on the outside appears to be very, very healthy? So uh, we treat corporate culture as really, really important. Um, but it's a constant, uh, it needs constant attention and it's a constant source of difficulty because your corporate culture isn't just who you are, it's who you're not. And yeah. it's easy to to put out a bunch of you know uh, of high sounding values and say you know we we aspire to be all these things, uh, but it it's it's harder to say here's what we're not going to be right yeah. or or we're going to be a place that's not really welcoming and comfortable to this type of person right. or this type of attitude and it takes a little courage to do that and uh, I think that <clears throat> to have a strong corporate culture that that's intentional. It takes courage. Everyone's going to have a corporate culture, right? Your, right? your organizational culture just comes from the organization existing, right? The question is, is it strong? Does it, is it well-defined? Does it, and, and I think a good test that is, does your culture kind of reject people who aren't fits, right? Do yeah. you, when, when somebody transplants in, does the culture just shift to adapt to whoever happens to walk in the door? Or does your culture actually say, you know, you're not going to fit here for these reasons? Yeah. And that's hard. And sometimes it can feel a little cold to say, you know, you're a great person, but you're not going to work well here yeah. um, because we're different. Um, and getting the courage to, to own that is uh, a big part of, of kind of growing up into a mature and really strong culture. Yeah. What are some of the things just out of uh, curiosity, I'm sure people will be wondering, but what are some of the things that are really key to your guys' corporate culture? So uh, our culture comes down to seven values, honesty, openness, awesomeness, growth, initiative, elegance, and shipping. And some of those values are in tension with each other, right? Building something awesome and elegant and getting it shipped and out the door to the customer, (laughs) those are in constant tension. And some of those values are things that are hard to live up to, right? If you make a mistake or if somebody feels that they don't have all the data they need, then they call you out on not being open enough, Mm -hmm. right? Or if they feel misled, they call you out on honesty. Or often tension is on shipping and elegance, right? They say, well, I'm trying to make something elegant and you're pushing me to ship it, right? Right. So – uh, I think of all of these value systems as aspirational, right? So it's, you know, you, you have to, to face the fact that you're going to fail at times. And part of our, our, the rest of our culture is to own up to those failures, to admit mistakes, to try to learn from those. Um, but there's, I think in a good corporate culture, there will always be these tensions, right? Yeah. Uh, because if it was super simple or, or something so, you know, vapid that everyone could agree to it, it wouldn't have a lot of strength. Right. One of the things I really like about uh, Logos, but then also I've seen it in a growing number of tech companies, is that there seems to be um, an emphasis on, uh, I don't know how to say it other than like 
Lagos looks like a fun place to work, right? So you watch your guys like working at Lagos. You guys have like Nerf Wars from what I see. And uh, so I wonder, I know that you have groups that run together and you guys are care. One of the cultural things that you're, you know, you try to create an environment that is conducive to it, at least appears to be relationship and connection and a quality of life and all of those things. And I think that some people could look in on that and could think like, well, like if, if people are, have access to that much fun at work, uh, it's going to hurt their productivity. And so how do you, like, why is that such a value to you guys? And how have you actually seen that be a benefit to those who work for work at Logos? Does that make sense? So I, I think that some of the, you know, having an outdoor center where you can check out a canoe right. and, you know, a uh, bike repair shop and, and some of those fun things, they're, they're like table stakes to be a tech company, right? Yeah. You know, you, you got to have lots of free coffee and fancy espresso machines. And, and that's, that's a, <clears throat> it's a recruiting tool and kind of a standard expectation in the culture. Okay. Um, being nice to each other and getting along and having a friendly environment where, you know, family's important and relationships important to me, that's just about how do you want to live, right? right? That's, you know, we spend a huge amount of our waking hours at work. It should be a nice place, right? We spend right. a lot of time with our coworkers, right? As much maybe as we do with some of our family members, we should like those people and care about those people. Right. So I, I think of those as, as just kind of core and essential but they also they're also providing a balance to an intense environment, right? Um, there are people who come here and kind of get caught up in like what's cool about the workplace and forget about the work, right? right. And that doesn't last for very long. We are an intense place. Um, we are a place where people, I hope, get to do some of the best work they've ever done, where they feel like they're challenged to grow. Um, and occasionally, we meet people who who don't want to grow, right? We meet people who are like, well, you know, when you when you criticize the things I worked on or suggest improvements, it just, you know, I don't like how that feels. Right. So, well, you know, you're not going to like it here. It's going to get worse and worse. Right. Um, <clears throat> I've had people who, we've met people who really are very, very change resistant, right? Everybody is, you know, made uncomfortable by change, but you can adopt an attitude that you're going to embrace that discomfort and just kind of go with it. Or you can say, I'm just always going to be unstable. You know, if you move my desk to a new building or to another floor, you know, I'm, you know, I can't function for a couple months while I sort things out and figure out where the coffee machine is. Right. Well, it, that's not going to work here, right? We're in an environment where that where the change happens all the time. I had somebody once, we did move somebody who who hadn't moved for a while and, and a manager came to me and said, you know, so and so is just completely stressed out here and they they wanted to know if if we could promise them that they wouldn't move again for like 5 years. And I said, "No." <laughs> yeah. I said you can promise them we're probably going to move their desk in the next 6 months. Right. And they need to to get comfortable with that or it's going to be hard to be a good fit here because That's if right. we're growing the way we want to, I can't promise you your desk's not going to move for 5 years. Right. Your website, uh, one of my favorite things on there is it just says that innovation is key to Logos growth, and that's apparent from the outside watching your company grow over the years. How have you created a culture where innovation is commonplace? Because it's not you know, necessarily common. Like, it's like sometimes most companies, most churches start with an initial innovation, and then it doesn't ever progress from that. So how has that become commonplace to your culture? And then are there, do you, have you guys seen or do you have core convictions that there are specific enemies of innovation as well? So there's been a lot written on this in the, the kind of you know startup culture, right? The innovator's dilemma and the innovator's solution. Yep. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about innovation. I think that the what I've been coming to grips with recently is that 
I, I'm kind of from the cult of innovation, right? I want to change things constantly. I want to see new things all the time. But uh, I realized that that's not always the right solution for everything, right? As products mature, as businesses mature, there's some value to stability, right? At a certain point, people, you know, in the beginning, if you add new features every week, people love it, right? And right. after a while, they're like, you know what? It kind of works for me. There's nothing else you can it's add true. to Microsoft Word that's going to improve my life as much as if you would fix this annoying bug over here or whatever it is. So what we're trying to do is, you know, is learn from those, all that research and innovation and figure out how you build a company and an organization that can at the one time you know, take what's what's mature and stable and keep it in, you know, maintenance and stability. Small innovation where it's where it really helps or incremental innovation, I think is the phrase. But at the same time, keep this ability to try crazy ideas and do wild things. And it creates a lot of tension in the organization. You know, the guys who <clears throat> the guys who wanna who take a new idea and stay up overnight and the next day show you a prototype of the of the site. You know, and go, hey, th look at this. We built this last night. It's awesome. Can we ship it? Right? right. There's other guys who are like, you know, other people on the team who say, well, wait a second. Uh, you know, that database is never going to scale, and they just hack this thing together. And what happens if a million people visit, and the, the server is going to fall over? And and the thing is, they're both right. Yeah. You know, but if you if you did everything to scale, right, you couldn't try 50 ideas this year, right? If everything right. is designed architecturally well to scale up to millions of users and handle, you know, failover scenarios and everything else, it doesn't work. So we're trying to actually build, you know, two organizations, right? To have, you know, the skunk works, the the innovation incubation area, as well as be able to be a very reliable, stable, steady provider to people like you who've been using our tools for years and need them to work and and be reliable. And finding that um the balance of where you put your resources and figuring out how you make it where you don't really have two organizations, right? You need one organization that can right. behave in two different ways. Uh, and that's, it's, it's an ongoing challenge that we are, are living every day. Um, I think we're finding ways to do that. Sometimes it's physically separating people. I'm actually in the basement of one of our buildings right now, and there's a team of four guys who are out of their normal workspace for a couple months doing something really cool. And they're they're hiding in the basement right. <laughs> out of everybody's way so that they can work on this thing without interrupting any anything else. You know, and then uh, but at some point too, you got to you know cycle people through the different teams and 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 make sure that you don't turn into or, an organization that's at war with itself. Right? Sure. No, I think that. That's very, very insightful about having one organization that behaves in two ways. Uh, yesterday on Twitter, I mentioned I was going to chat with you, which I try to do with every episode. And a guy on Twitter, at Matt Larson, asked, uh, he said, I'm worried about the incorporation of Faith Life. Can you keep Logos legit while growing a corporation? And I thought that was an interesting question. Not... I mean, you can answer that specifically, but it did make me wonder, how do you lead a growing, evolving company or ministry without maybe diluting the main thing uh, that you started with, I think, in many people's eyes? I mean, you can talk a little bit about what all you guys have expanded to, but it's not just the one Bible software thing anymore. So how, how have you maintained that and not lost that or seen that become diluted in the midst of the expansion and growth and, and, and innovation you guys have experienced? Uh, that is a constant challenge. Um, 
we, we took the Faith Life name for the corporation really to separate the company name and the product. We had the same name for the company and the product. And as we did more and more things, that just became confusing. Sure. You know, um, for Lagos Bible Software to be the agent of, you know. Right. <clears throat> so Faith Life Corporation, you know, encompasses Lagos Bible Software, but also Proclaim Church Presentation Software, Lexum Press that does books and magazine publishing. We have a lot of different things that have been going for many years and are really part of who we are. Um, and we are we have to work at that consciously all the time, right? We're actually, you know, working through new documents, new definitions, even internal communication so that people have clarity. You know, what are we about? You know, at the core, we are still about the Bible and we are about using technology to help people study the Bible and engage it more, right? And all these different things are still around that core. Even the stuff we publish with Lexham Press points people back to the Bible, right? The Proclaimed Church presentation software helps the pastor get their sermon slides, not just song lyrics, up on the screen and get people connected to the Bible. Right. So it's you have to be conscious about that all the time to avoid that you know, scattered distraction. Totally. And how do you, I mean, so you've been 24 years, you said now, is how, yes. how far in you guys, how do you personally stay interested after all of these years, all of these years? For me, it's the constant innovation, right? Uh, I, I was making some observation about being in the same job for 24 years to somebody recently. And, and he said, you know, actually I've been looking at your company for a little bit. He says, it's more like you've been in a different job every two years <laughs> yeah. for 24 years. And I thought about that. I thought that's actually kind of right. I mean, every two years we're into something different, right? And we've, we've kept many of the things we worked on, but you know, we, we added a, a paper magazine, Bible study magazine. We added a publishing operation with Lexham Press. We've added distance education with Lagos Mobile Ed. You know, we keep moving into new spaces and and I found that that my skill set is often about identifying and incubating those new things, and I'm getting better at letting go of the things that that don't need to be messed with as much, and yeah. turn them over to people who can do a good job of taking care of them and serving those users. Uh, and I think that's that's what's working out as part of this process of building the you know the organization that works in two different ways is figuring out where you should put most of your attention. I know a lot of uh, leaders and pastors at some point uh, at times their their ministry or their business or whatever it might be outgrows them uh, and their own ability and capacity. So how, how have you, with the growth of Logos, how have you pushed yourself to grow and learn? What have been some keys other than just kind of learning on the job and learning to adjust? Have there been any things that you've intentionally put into your life by way of uh, kind of self-learning? Absolutely. Um, I think that you have to make a decision about where you want to go. And I decided that I wanted to lead the organization moving forward. It would have been very easy to say, I'm going to stay in the technology side, right? That was where my initial strength was. And I could have said, I'm going to stay in the technology side and hire, you know, business or marketing people to run the business side of things. But I wanted to lead the organization across all those things. So I had to be conscious about building skills I didn't have, right? So I would read in new areas, you know, read about marketing, read about sales. You know, I'm, I'm not a salesperson at heart. You know, I, I don't have the skill set that, that great salespeople have. I, I admire it a lot. And now I understand it well because I read books on how to be a great salesman. Right. And I have to consciously go study those areas where you need the support. You know, being a computer programmer in high school does not really set you up for a career in public speaking. <laughs> but, uh, 
I went out and took courses. You know, I went and did, you know, uh, courses in public speaking. I sought out speaking engagements, whether it was with the local Lions Club and the Rotary or whatever, just to, to get practice, right? Yeah. And I was terrifying and it was challenging to, to pick up those new skills, but I needed those things to, to do the job I wanted to do. And I think being intentional about that can make a big difference, right? Not everybody wants to do everything, right? I've, there's churches where, you know, the pastor wants to preach, right? And as the church grows, they hire an executive pastor or some staff to to run the administration and so that they can focus on preaching. And there's other churches where building the organization and the culture is the, the leading thing, right? And they even bring in other teaching pastors and rotate the pulpit, right? And I, I don't think there's one right model in any of these areas, right. but if you're intentional, then you can go out and, and prepare by getting the education you need. That's good. Well, so, uh, so real time right now, what's uh, something that you're reading or a couple books that you're reading that uh, you're finding inspiring or helpful or has you thinking? Uh, I just finished recently Becoming Steve Jobs, which I thought was a great compliment to the Isaacson Steve Jobs book and, you know, referenced a lot of the stuff in Creativity Inc., which is now on my list to read. Yeah, Uh, very good. And I've been listening to some of the great courses on audio. So the company that does a lot of, you know, academic audio courses, I just finished Legacies of the Great Economists. And I'm just trying to, you know, fill out holes in my education and learn about different areas. Um, and then I'm always researching whatever is the next discipline for us or the next space. Right now, I'm very interested in video and interactive video. I think that, you know, uh, over the internet, television is is really coming into its own against broadcast television. And yeah. I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities in Bible education and, and kind of faith-based TV that we should be exploring. So I'm putting a lot of effort into that right now. Great. Well, if someone uh, has been listening, they're not super familiar with Logos, but they're curious now and want to check it out, what's the best way for them to go about getting connected to uh, exploring that? So I would encourage people to go to faithlife.com slash about. At faithlife.com slash about, you'll find a video with an overview of all the different things and links to the different websites. And if you have a smartphone in your pocket, you pull it out and download the Faith Life Study Bible. It's completely free. You register, you get access to an incredible study Bible and Bible dictionary with videos and maps and interactive material. And it's very... it's a good way to get into using Bible study tools on a daily basis without having to make a big investment up front. Excellent. All right. We'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes, Bob. I want to say thanks so much for, first of all, for leaving Microsoft and starting Logos because it's it has saved me, I don't even know how many hours at this point as a preacher, uh, but also made me better as a result of it. And uh, so you guys have been a great gift to us and thanks for coming on in the room. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. My thanks to Bob for taking the time to chat and to you for taking the time to listen in. As always, I hope you found it helpful and I want to make sure that you check the show notes of today's episode for links to any of the resources that we discussed and I personally want to encourage you to check out the Logos Bible software as it's been an invaluable resource to me. Don't forget you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the ways that you and I can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And until next week, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.